Hey, everybody. Hope you're all having a wonderful day. This episode of the podcast is with Jason Haro. Jason is wicked smart. I don't think I've ever talked so little in an episode before. I just asked a few questions and Jason answered them maybe more comprehensively than any other guest I've ever had on the show. Uh, it was an impressive spectacle to witness. He is an attorney of law. He co-runs Equal Citizens with Lawrence Lessig. Um, he's a Harvard Law graduate and a super cool dude who is helping um, research for the 2019 Motherfucker Awards. Um, and I just enjoyed talking to him immensely. This episode is made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals is a CBD company based out of Santa Cruz, California, my hometown. They make CBD clay masks, CBD coconut oil, CBD olive oil, and you can get 10% off right now by typing in the code name KYLE10, all caps, at scmedicinals.com. So if you need some CBD in your life, if you struggle with inflammation, if you want to help with your sleep, um, check it out. It's uh, all the rage. And I recently went on a big surf trip and was using CBD every night um, to help me go to bed. We were on a different time zone. Um, I was using it on my muscles after seven hours straight of surfing every day. And um, it's just, it's great. It's potent, it's high quality, and you can get 10% off by going to scmedicinals.com and typing in the code name KYLE10, all caps. All right, that's it for now. If you want to get in touch with me, head over to my website, kyle.surf. And if you enjoy this podcast, reach out to Jason. I will put all of his, his contact um, in the episode description below. And with that, I bring you Jason Haro. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Jason Haro in the house. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Um, yeah, so I wanted to dig in uh, first to your work with Equal Citizens. How did you get involved with Equal Citizens and what is it? So it's probably best to take what Equal Citizens is first before mm -hmm. I got involved because that's uh, <laughs> intimately important. I wanted to get involved with something I believed in. And Equal Citizens is a nonprofit that was started after the 2016 election by Larry Lessig, who's a law professor at Harvard. I also attended Harvard for law school and I knew his work up there, though he and I, he was doing some other things at the time and I didn't end up actually taking any of his classes. But I followed his talks and as he was expounding on the theories of how our Congress became so dysfunctional and how our government became so dysfunctional and so unrepresentative and so captured by big money in politics, I had kept in the back of my mind that I wanted to work on those issues, even though they were really difficult. So when 2016 rolled around and on election night, when I was bummed because Trump had been elected, like many of my lawyer friends and non-lawyer friends, of course, but I think for for some lawyers too, you're like, what, what can I do about this, right? The rule of law is under attack. And so I was working at a law firm and I uh, ended up uh, 
thinking about what what am I going to do next? And I caught a blog post by Larry who had started this nonprofit called Equal Citizens and they were just really figuring out what their focus was going to be. And the blog post was about how the Electoral College and the way states choose their electors in the Electoral College, which is to say if a candidate gets one more single popular vote than the other candidate in that state, they get all of the electors. So in California, where we live, 55 electors, Hillary Clinton got millions more electoral votes, but even if she only got one more vote, she would get all 55 of uh, the state's electoral votes. And, And Larry wrote a post saying, not only is this not fair, A lot of people were really pissed at this outcome after the election uh, because Hillary Clinton won the popular vote nationally by such a large margin. But this should be illegal in a country where we have a constitutional provision that provides equal protection of the laws. And so if we have equal protection of the laws, he said, and that means that the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court has interpreted that to mean one person, one vote equality. That makes sense. How is my vote worth equal to anyone else's if the person who got fewer votes won. Right. One thing I appreciate about Equal Citizens is the effort that you put into bipartisanship. I like that you gave the example of Hillary Clinton, and I I think that it's very easy to get on one team and start throwing grenades, but I think that you're one of the few organizations that really doesn't placate towards one side or the other, but you're looking at the deeper, more institutional um, corruption involved that everyone should care about. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And everyone should care about it for a simple reason if you're on both sides, which is you can't get things you want done if there is intense corruption. Because the, the kind of corruption we're talking about and, and that, that I also wanted to work on in addition to these electoral college problems is um, related to how the government works and whether it's responsive to the people or whether it's responsive to the donors or the super PACs or the big money interests or the average voter. And I think many people are viscerally aware uh, that that the average voter doesn't have a whole lot of say in what gets passed and what gets enacted, that so much is about interest groups and so much is about big money and wealthy donors. And, 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 uh, and that's a problem for both sides, right? I mean, l- look at what's going on, Kyle, right now with a Congress that was majority Republican in the Senate, majority Republican in the House, and a Republican president coming in. And... What could they pass in their first several years? We, immigration reform, Trump ran on the wall, ran on the wall. Congress didn't give him a dime, right? Totally dysfunctional. Congress, or tr- Trump ran on solving this immigration problem. Congress hasn't enacted one solution to the problem. Hmm. And why is that? I think a large part of it is that there are large corporate interests in the Republican Party that like the status quo, right? The Koch brothers who are by many measures, the largest donors to many Republican politicians or Republican interests. They have large corporations and they are comfortable with the status quo, right? The status quo lets many corporations pay workers under the table, right? Allows them to hire undocumented workers as household staff and things like that and, and pay them less than minimum wage and not give them protection. And uh, m- many companies and large interests are on both sides of the aisle like that status quo right they don't they don't really want meaningful immigration reform um it's sort of a a good corporate solution it keeps the economy humming in a way that other economies that have very restrictive immigration which is what trump wants right look at japan japan has extremely restrictive immigration and they have no nurses 
and they have, you know, uh, difficult to produce, you know, uh, uh, agricultural industry and things like that. And so really restricting immigration, they know is not great for business and they block it. Right. They, and, and so I think there's lots of other examples of if you want something done, um, whether you're on the right and you want immigration reform in one way or you're on the left and you want health care and you want climate change legislation. No, nothing has really gotten done except a couple things that we can all, well, some parties can all agree on, like tax cuts. Okay. There, there's lots of money flowing in for tax cuts. And what, you know, Kyle, what did, what did Mitch McConnell say? What did the Republicans say about the tax cut bill openly? They said, if we don't pass this, our donors are really going to stop stop giving. Well, what about the people? <laughs> I mean, you're more worried about having, you know, your donations pulled than what people actually care about. Right. I think that spoke real volumes about who's controlling what in the government. Yeah. Matt Taibbi said um, most issues are not left-right issues. Most issues are rich-poor issues. Um, who benefits from the status quo? Who benefits from this kind of gridlock and nothing being able to be passed in the current climate that we're in? Um, the, well, the, the first line answer is everyone who's doing okay... Uh, benefit Be- because why would you change things if you're doing okay? The people who are doing okay is, as you said, the, the the people who have gotten a lot of the economic gains for the last several decades, the large corporations, um, politicians themselves, right? What one reason why reform of the basic rules of the road are really hard is that unlike in sports, where like the commissioner's office can you know say what the referees are supposed to do, and the teams and the referees are different. The politicians themselves are setting the rules that govern their own game. So anytime you change the rules, you make their jobs more uncertain. You make it more uncertain about whether they're going to get reelected or not. So uh, that's what makes campaign finance reform extremely hard. That's what makes gerrymandering reform extremely hard. They might think in their heads, I'm a good politician. I could win even if I didn't get $4 million from the NRA or $4 million from Hollywood or $4 million from, from whoever else. But why risk it? Right? I mean, right. that, that, that's what's great about the status quo is they know they can win in the current environment, so they don't want to change it. Right. Um, the word lobbyist has become kind of a dirty word in recent times. But my understanding of um, your and, and Larry's view on lo- lobbyists is that that's not actually a bad... Lo- being a lobbyist is not necessarily a bad thing. It's the power that they have been able to take um, in the current climate. Um, can you tell me a bit more about the role that lobbyists have right now and the role that you think they should have? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a good point and, and an important topic because lobbyist is a bad word for many people in the public. And one of the most common reforms, including, by the way, a bipart- you talked about bipartisanship, a bipartisan reform put forward by Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, don't see eye to eye on that much, would be to extend a ban on lobbying. I think right now it's a few years. They want a lifetime ban on lobbying by former congressional officials and, and things like that, right? At, no one likes the fact that you could be in Congress for 10 years, at, you know, lose your office or decide to retire. And then the very next day, take a whole boatload of money and go argue on behalf of a large corporation or a wealthy donor or a special interest to, to take some action with all your friends in Congress. No one likes that. Um, we don't like it. But lo- the fact is lobbyists are 
they, they can serve useful purposes as well, right? Um, nonprofits have lobbyists. The ACLU has lobbyists, right? Um, uh, coalitions of organizations that do, you know, green, uh, that, that want green products have lobbyists because uh, unfortunately, the Congress is really without a lot of apparatus to do research about what, you know, the facts of important economic data and sociological data on the ground. And they're also really uh, extended quite thinly. And so writing these bills, which I don't know Kyle, how often you read the United States Code or the various California codes, these bills are complicated and they're sort of hard to they're hard to parse, and one thing that keeps judges and lawyers busy is even when you put in a lot of attention, there's all these vague terms and all these things that change, and it's really hard. So who's writing these bills? It's nice to have a little bit of assistance writing the bills, and, and lobbyists can provide that. Um, so they're, they're, not, they're not all bad. There, there is certainly a bad kind of lobbying where you're just a shill for a moneyed interest and you're blocking everything except you know what's happening uh, you know for uh, for your particular cause. But I think the it highlights the broader problem. So what we like to talk about is not just lobbyists, but it's dependents, right? Who is Congress and politicians and state representatives and governors? Who are they depending on? Depending on lobbyists a little bit, but they're also depending on fundraisers. They're depending on super PACs. They're depending on dark money donors. They're depending on interest groups. And that's sort of the broad culture of influence that is much much more influential than just lobbyists per se. Right. So um, the role of a lobbyist, my understanding, should be to inform Congress about how a about the ramifications of a bill. Is that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Correct? I mean, m- my understanding of like the origin of the term is they were literally standing in the lobby of the of the halls of the mm-hmm. of power, the state legislatures and the Congress, right? And they they weren't on the floor, but they were there in the lobby if you wanted some information, and that that can provide you know real real benefits, right? I I mean, I for instance am someone who wants uh, my state legislators to be acting on good environmental information when they pass bills and enact regulations about how we should deal with um, climate change and emissions and water safety and things like that. Well, where are they going to get that from? I mean, I think that uh, the Sierra Club has pretty good information and earth justice, and I think they have better information than than Coke Industries and ExxonMobil about these things. So I would like them to be in the room with my Congress people and with my representatives. So they need lobbyists too to give that kind of information. Right, right, right. Um, so what are some of the, what are some of the bills being put forward right now that you are most hopeful about? I want to make sure this conversation doesn't get too dark too quickly. So on on the flip side of it, like you really have a, your finger on the pulse of what's happening right now. Um, is there, are there any bills that you're hopeful about and what should people be paying attention to? So, so let's break it down federally and, and state by state because um, there is reason for optimism, Kyle. And so, so do you know about H.R. 1? Have, have yes. You, okay. So H.R. 1 is really a great reason for optimism for people, and, and people should tell their neighbors about it, should write their congresspeople about it. This is a bill, H.R. Uh, 1, it gets an important number, one, because Nancy Pelosi signaled that it was the first priority for the new Democratic Congress that came into office in January of, of 2019, January of this year. Its subtitle is the For the People Act, and it enacts a huge suite of reforms of the kind that we've been talking about here, not only related to 
money and politics and ways to uh, ethics, you know, tightening ethics laws and lobbyist laws, um, uh, tightening campaign finance restrictions and providing vouchers and uh, which which we can talk about in a minute. But the the all kinds of other things, gerrymandering reform, right, making voting easier, automatic voter registration. So this is a bill that really tackles a lot of the problems that are out there that are making it so hard to get anything done and so hard for politicians to be responsive to the people, be dependent on the people as opposed to these special interests. So and it passed the House. Right? That's a landmark. And that's phenomenal. Um, Mitch McConnell, who is the majority leader in the Senate and therefore gets to set the agenda of the U.S. Senate, gets to set the docket. McConnell, who many uh, folks who pay close attention to the Democratic race, is you know enemy number two probably <laughs> after President Trump because he says he's not even getting a vote. Right. You know, just like he said to Merrick Garland when there was an open seat on the Supreme Court and he denied any kind of vote uh, to President Obama, he said, yeah, I'm not even letting my members say what what they whether they're for this or against this. We're not even going to vote it down. We're not just going to take it up for reasons that I think are really spurious. He, he claims that it's a, uh, a bill to protect Democrats who are in office, which I mean, if, for instance, take gerrymandering. If you're ending gerrymandering, why would that protect either party? It would it, w- it would just make it a fair election. Um, he doesn't really respond to, to that criticism. But nonetheless, that's reason to hope. And it's reason to think that if the Democrats take back uh, the Senate and take the presidency in 21, that this will be on the agenda. It's also reason to think that perhaps even if that doesn't happen in the long term, this is on people's radars. And if a few Republicans come back to the table or if Mitch McConnell is no longer the leader of the Senate, maybe there can be some compromise struck um, and, and, you know, because Republican voters really do not like the corruption they see either. They don't like gerrymandering. They want to drain the swamp, as President Trump told them. It's just hard for them to actually do it when their leaders don't let bills like this come to a vote. Right. That's reason for optimism, number one. I'll give you some more, too. I mean— Yeah, I wanted to—do you want to get into vouchers later? So, so sure. in H.R. 1, the voucher system is part of that. Is that correct? Or is— Yeah, so th- that's right. Um, and there's even— there's two different sorts of proposals that have been floating out there. One is uh, uh, one are vouchers and, and one is matching funds. And uh, vouchers are are actually part of Senator Kirsten Gillibrand's proposal, which is the most aggressive funding proposal for campaign finance reform that has been put forward even more than HR1 and, um, uh, and, and some of her Democratic colleagues. And that basically just gives people money to give to candidates uh, so that they can raise funds that way instead of raising funds by holding big fundraisers from large wealthy donors. Um, the reason that's so efficient to do is that you know way fewer than 1% of people give any money at all to political campaigns. So if you just put money in the hands of every voter, and Senator Gillibrand, like I said, wants to do it to the tune of $200 for every federal election, then you get to this really interesting place where uh, political candidates start actually competing for people in, in, instead of just wealthy people and well, and big checks. Um, so that's that's a voucher system. I'll just footnote uh, for for interested listeners. There is another system proposed. I think it's the one in HR one that's actually matching funds. Where what would happen is for if people donate, let's say ten bucks, there's a match. In some places, it's six to one, ten to one, four to one. So it would magnify the individual. Uh, ability of um, uh, of voters to have a say. So who would match you, them? Yeah. The government. Okay. So there'd be a fund. So if you supported 
you know, a candidate, if you supported, I don't know, Beto O'Rourke in the Democratic primary, for example, you under the democracy dollar system that Senator Gillibrand has proposed, you would just have 200 free dollars that you could use, you know, almost it's like a voucher. It's like an Amazon gift card. You can only use that at Amazon. $200 you can use only for federal elections and you can give it to Beto O'Rourke if you wish. Um, the other version is, okay, let's say I feel strongly about Beto. I want to magnify my impact. If I get my credit card out and give him 20 bucks, a four to one match will add an additional $80 from the government's coffers to Beto to make it to make individual donors more powerful. The problem with that system is that you've got to have at least some money to start it, right? And and there's just a huge portion of the public that have no resources whatsoever to be donating to political campaigns, right? They're worried about making ends meet or they, you know, medical bills or just want to save money and don't want to pony up $20 that they don't have for a political candidate but still want to have a say. So I think we like the pure democracy dollar voucher system better just because it doesn't discriminate on on that axis. But hey, you know, it's better than nothing to be able to at least magnify individual donors. Right. And how many people right now matter as donors in the current climate? Um, so it depends what you mean by matter. And, I'm, uh, to, and, to, to politicians. And, yeah. And what race. Yeah. So the presidential race is high profile enough where it is possible to try and run a campaign where the small donations matter, right? Bernie Sanders has famously tried this. Millions of donors, $27 or $29 average. And um, he has shunned large fundraisers, right? He has he he really has successfully done something like what a lot of people think would happen if we gave these people democracy dollars. It's unclear if you can win that way. It's unclear if it will ultimately matter you know, and if it's unclear, it's unclear that that would translate to any other race because the presidential race, there's 300 plus million people paying attention. It's so high profile. It's on cable news every day. It's on the internet every day. Um, so that said, for many candidates, there's a much smaller portion of the people that actually matter. Um, you know, those are the people who can write really big checks directly to campaigns in the, in the thousands of dollars or to super PACs in unlimited amounts. And, um, you know, depending on how you count, those are well less than 0.01% uh, of the country. I mean, depend again, you know, you, you could even identify just a few dozen donors that seem to matter a whole, whole lot. Um, so that, that that's pretty troubling. When it comes to, to lower offices, though, I will say those wealthy donors, the interest groups that can funnel millions of dollars to a super PAC that will run these ridiculous negative ads against your opponent, those matter hugely. It's extremely difficult if you're running for California State Senate to fund entirely on a grassroots basis. There's just not enough people paying attention. There's just not enough people in your district where only a few hundred thousand people live to actually garner that kind of support. So it's really difficult not to rely on these big money donors in the current system. Okay. Um, and let's take it way down into how this current system affects me. So let's take, you know, California Senate seat or just really any um, local election. What are examples of the way that this um, system affects people like you and me and people listening? So I think that there's two really big ways. The first one is that 
it affects who runs for office and what they do when they're in office. The surveys show that politicians spend between 30 and 70% of their time raising money. That's, that, they should be paying attention to you. They should be solving your problems. If you've ever written to your congressperson and said, hey, I've got a street, you know, you know what I mean? There's a light here that's broken or a stop sign needs to be fixed. Or sometimes you have to go to your congressperson or your state senate for you know, certain types of social security relief or things like that because the system is not working. It would be great if they actually had a lot of time to pay attention to those requests. And they don't. And a disturbing example that I recently read, um, I think in Larry's forthcoming book, is that when Ronald Reagan ran for president in 1984, he held eight fundraisers. Eight. Um, so he was president, still president, and he was able to do his job and take away time for, for eight large fundraisers. When Barack Obama was running for president in 2012, he held 224 fundraisers while he was president. He was trying to be president. By the way, this was a guy who clearly worked extremely hard as president. He spent a lot of time doing it, and still he felt the need to hold hundreds of fundraisers while in office. So that affects you. That affects you because he's not doing his job. And it trickles down even more so to the local politicians who don't have the resources of the president, don't have the resources of the office of the president, are supposed to be paying attention to what you want, and instead are... Um, making phone calls and, uh, you know, uh, spending all their time raising money. So I think that's disastrous. Um, the second way it affects you is what, what happens in the policy? How, who are they responsive to? What bills are able to be passed? And on that score, it's also really not good, right? I mean, I think a recent example that so many people have paid attention to is gun legislation. It's just been impossible to move gun reg- legislation through states, many states. Some states uh, ha- have, in fact, I should say, tightened gun laws. But uh, there's a lot of common sense gun restrictions that 80 plus percent of the uh, American population believes in, things like background checks, mental health checks. And they just haven't been able to pass. And, and you ask yourself, how could it be that something with 80 percent support and common sense support doesn't get done? And the answer is, Money, right? The, the answer is that politicians are afraid of a barrage of negative ads from special interest groups like the NRA if they vote the way the NRA uh, thinks you shouldn't vote, if, if they depart from that recommendation, if they get you know, a docked on their NRA report card, there's just all this money flowing in. Uh, that will make it very difficult for them to get reelected. And that's, you know, that's often the first thing that politicians think about. Not always. There's some politicians that are willing to, uh, you know, die on that hill. There are some politicians that are willing to take hard votes and potentially lose their office. Has the NRA run negative campaign ads against politicians? And will it say that it was made possible by the NRA? So they are... Um, they have run ads. They spent, I think, the the last cycle. You want water? You, you need water? Are you good? Yeah, uh, go for sure. it. Sure. There you go. Uh, so I think the. Thanks. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me. You're good. For... You're talking way more than I am. I love it. Okay. <laughs> I'm just letting you go. I'm, I'm like throwing okay. throwing you a couple softballs. Yes. You're knocking them out of the park. Got to hydrate. Got to hydrate. Yeah. You're, so, you're the athlete in this one. Uh, yeah. So. Um, the, the, okay, so the question is about the NRA and how much money do they pour in and, and what they're doing. Yeah, these examples are fascinating yeah. to me. So the last numbers I saw, there's a great website called Open Secrets where you can pull some of this data, and they do what they can. You know, Open Secrets implies that some of these things are secret, and unfortunately, there's various dark money loopholes and things like that that do make 
life difficult for those trying to figure out who is running what ads. But the most recent numbers I've seen are the NRA has spent upwards of $50 million in recent election cycles on on these ads. And they do it uh, through affiliated groups, I believe, Um, though the NRA, after Citizens United, is allowed to independently run ads. They can put unlimited amounts of money into them and they can say they're from the NRA and they can say don't vote for this candidate or vote for this candidate, although most of the time they do say don't vote. Um, so the uh, um, that's a lot of money. But the truth is, in a way, the threat of, of even more money is what's governing a lot of behavior, right? I mean, it's like a, a, a child who knows that they have really strict parents, right? That the strict parent doesn't need to be punishing all the time in order to maintain the threat. You only need to do it every once in a while. And that's exactly what the NRA does, right? The NRA, by putting 50 million bucks per cycle in and by picking a few key offices and picking a few key Republicans even to to run ads against in a primary, to get a more extreme candidate in there and say, we're going to take down the, the middle of the roads, that makes every single Republican and Democrat even who is thinking of voting contrary to the way the NRA recommends, that makes them think really, really hard or else am I going to see $5 million of outside spending? Because it's legal and it's, and it's unlimited amounts. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's, I think, a really indicative example of the influence of money in politics. But it, it goes back, uh, you know, a, a ways. And, and there's examples on the other sides, Kyle, that, you know, I, I think a, a really good one is the way that Obamacare got shaped. And the con- we're living with those consequences today as more more Democrats on the trail talk about Medicare for all and single payer. And the president, President Obama, was talking about that in 2007, 2008 on the trail, perhaps even in 2009. Well, that became, it quickly became clear that that was impossible because, uh, you know, the insurance industry has so much sway in Congress. I looked up, but before this interview, I looked up um, the, the numbers here to, to get in a, a real world story of how this impacts policy. And Max Baucus, who was who who kind of wrote the bill in the Senate, he was a Montana senator who uh, was the chairman of the relevant committee. In the few years leading up to the passage, uh, uh, the introduction of Obamacare, he had taken over five million dollars from the health industry and the health insurance industry. Five million from them. So you're telling me he's going to run around and write a bill that puts them out of business? It's not possible, right? I mean, that that just not even possible to think about. Go back 30 years, Larry likes to use this example, um, the, the, there was a, a senator from Mississippi named John Stennis who was like a segregationist, like he was not a, a good guy, but he was the chair of the Defense Appropriations Committee, and so he was doling out all these contracts, and he refused to take money from the defense industry, and when someone asked about him, and this was 1982, he said, I sit in judgment of life or death for these companies, of Lockheed Martin and things. I'm awarding government contracts. I'm appropriating billions of dollars. How could I take money and be impartial? Well, fast forward 30 years, Mac Buckus is taking $5 million. And how is he supposed to, to be impartial? Um, so I, I don't know. Right. Th- th- that's the times in which we live. Yeah. So to play devil's advocate, um, what is... How how would you play Mitch McConnell right now? Like, what would what would his argument to this be? Would it be that 
um, less restrictions on corporate interests trickles down to create a bigger engine for our economy? What like what is the argument put forth by the people imposing the system? So the the argument is. I've heard a few versions, and first of all, I appreciate the ability to step into the shoes of, of Mitch McConnell. I've, I, I sometimes, when I try and defend the president's policies, uh, some folks call me Jason Huckabee Sanders, um, <laughs> although I'll have to change the name now that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is no longer the spokesperson. I don't know who Mitch McConnell's spokesperson is, who I, who I, whose last name I can take, but it's an interesting thought exercise, and, and there's a couple of arguments. The main argument is free speech and freedom. Right. And, and so what Mitch McConnell often says, and many Republicans often say, is what, what are we going to do about it? Right? They, they don't really deny that there's bad effects or that there isn't a lot of money floating around in the system. But they, they often point to corporations and they say, but what about unions? What about teachers unions? What about workers unions? Right. They have a lot of money, too, and they're spending it. So don't you want them to have a say? Right? Don't don't you want you know corporations should have a say, just like special interests should have a say, just like unions should have a say. And how are we gonna how are we gonna stop all this? Right? They have the rights to free speech. They have if they have money, they can use that money to uh, you know spend on ads or uh, PR and things like that. And what are we gonna do about it? Right? The 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 solution is 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 worse than the problem. They say the, because the solution is censorship according to them, hmm. right? The solution is telling people not to speak and having the government pick and choose winners. I, I don't find that particularly persuasive because even though I'm very sympathetic to the idea that we, the government should not be censoring people, in fact, there is a de facto censorship going on because the rules of the road are so unfair. And in fact, the voices of... Uh, wealthy donors and um, and and corporate interests are being magnified so much that in a country with an equal protection clause, in a country with a constitutional provision of equality, we are not getting equal speech, mm-hmm. right? And and so uh, that's why these democracy dollars and vouchers are really interesting solutions because they don't actually stop anyone from speaking; they help people speak more, right? They help you, Kyle, speak more. Not trying to shut the NRA up. Yeah, trying tr- trying to have you counteract their voice, which I think is a really nice solution to it. We we sometimes get responses like you know in other countries they like in in England there's specific windows for running campaigns, right? They, I don't know if I I don't pay super close attention to all the rules of every parliament in the world, but I do know that you know even election day is not necessarily set. Sometimes they disband the parliament and say, we're going to hold an election on this date. And then there's a window for campaigning and things like that. And p- sometimes questions we get from people is, why can't we just do that? Right? Why can't we just say, talk all you want, donate all you want, but only in the eight weeks before the election? Wouldn't that be nicer for everyone? And the answer is maybe, but also they don't have a first amendment in England. They don't even have a written constitution. So it's really hard to tell people, hey, don't speak on issues of public importance until this date, right? That really strikes of censorship. And I'm sympathetic to that. So in terms of Mitch McConnell's criticism, I guess I'll go back to that and I'll say to Mitch, I'm sympathetic, but I think it's misplaced and, and, and that he's exaggerating 
the, 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 the ability of us to solve this problem with creative solutions, even if, he ha- even if there is a nugget of a point, which is we don't want government censorship. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's argument one that I've often heard from, from those who like the status quo. Um, argument two is what I said a little bit earlier, and I can, you know, flesh out some response to it is where he says, well, this is just going to benefit one party as if anyone proposing any reform is automatically doing it in their self-interest. And I think that that's just short-sighted, right? It's um, the, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is there are these people in America who try it, they, they do try and put country first, right? I remember when that was a slogan of the Republican Party and things, country first, not, not party first. And I, I think there are people, right? I, I, I think that um, we do have to recognize that sometimes there are motivations for changing the rules in a way that would benefit um, one party politically. But other times there, there's just a problem that we're trying to identify and, and we want to fix it. You know, John McCain was a longtime advocate for campaign finance. And I don't think he thought of it in terms of whether it would benefit the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I think he thought it would benefit America hmm. and it would benefit the system. So um, I understand why in today's day and age, your knee-jerk reaction is to go, if a Democrat proposes it, it's going to benefit their party. But I, I, I'm not 100% sure that that's right. I think that, that there are uh, unexpected consequences. And I think that, um, so, I, I, and so I think that there are, there are also a few things that we have to acknowledge would probably benefit the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in the short run, and that's just life, right? right. We should just have better rules. You know, if you move the three-point line back in sports, and I, I don't want to isolate, you know, antagonize anyone who doesn't listen to sports here, but if you move the three-point line back, you're probably going to benefit the Golden State Warriors in the short run because they have the best three-point shooters in the, in, in the league. Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Okay. Okay. But maybe it's the right thing to do. And maybe in the long run, it will change the game in a way that benefits other teams and they'll figure out how to play with other rules and maybe there'll be new people. And I, th- I think something similar has to happen here. Right. Um, yeah. I, that was very well put, man. I, and I think that the arguments of freedom, like, look, I'm a podcaster. I love free, free speech. Totally. But, there are a lot of perversions of these laws, right? So if a corporation is a legal person and a legal person has right to free speech, you, you can follow that train of logic, but GE is not a real person. They're an immortal superpower that is going to be heard many times more than your average person. Um, one of the ways that I got introduced to Lawrence Lessig was through the documentary The Internet's Own Boy with Aaron and Aaron Schwartz. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a great line in there. He was talking about the SOPA and the PIPA acts. And he said, uh, with the internet, everyone has a voice. The question is now who gets heard? Totally. I, I think that that's spot on. It's something Larry's been talking about for a while. And for those also interested in the point you made about GE, there's a phenomenal book that came out a year or two ago by a law professor here in Los Angeles at UCLA named Adam Winkler, who wrote a book called We the Corporations. And he makes exactly this point, which is there's been this incredible movement by corporations to be recognized as people for all these rights, right? They get all these wonderful benefits, free speech, unlimited donations, um, due process rights, you know, things like that. There's all these creative uses of the Constitution. But then again, they don't 
die like people die. They don't go to jail like people do when they, you know, uh, when, when, when they violate a criminal law. So they seem to get all these benefits without any of the burdens of, of being in real life. And, and that does exactly this, which is they, they kind of get to really magnify their speech in a way that is impossible for any person. But they don't really pay the consequences for it, right? They just get to put a vague name there. You don't have to stand behind it. You just say Americans for prosperity. What's Americans for prosperity? And who's not for prosperity? I'm for prosperity, you know? But but so they just make something up and they don't have to say this is me behind it and, and then pay the consequences of that. So it's pretty disturbing. Is Americans for prosperity a super PAC? I, you know, good question. I, it has super PAC arms. I think it's actually technically organized as a 501c4. I'm not sure. Quote me on that, which is a kind of nonprofit that is allowed to engage in political speech and doesn't have to disclose a lot of their donors, but then they can engage in political activity. They can shuffle it around. So there's all these umbrella groups, and I'm, I'm never sure whether, you know, Americans for Prosperity is 501c4, and then Prosperity Plus is the super PAC, and then there's a dark money group. There's all these affiliated entities. Yeah, I've found that the more benign-sounding the name, the more malign the organization probably is. Oh, for sure, for sure, <laughs> it's for, like sure. for sure. One that it's you just glaze over, and you're like, oh, Americans for Prosperity, that sounds cool. Right on, American Legislative Executive Council. I, uh, what the waves are going to be good tomorrow? I don't really care about them. But then you're like, holy shit! There's right. a lot of money coming through here. Right. right. So what is the point of a super PAC? Why doesn't an organization just kick it old school and drop a bag of money on the congressman's desk? So um, it's it's a good question. I I think that the the way you phrased it starts to lead us to an answer, which is what you just talked about seems a lot like bribery, right? Dr- dropping money on a desk. And then having a congressman pick it up and go, oh, how, how should I vote today? Right. right. That that doesn't sound good. That sounds a lot like what was happening in, you know, the late 19th century and in, uh, in New York where Boss Tweed, right, was, you know, taking bribes and doling out contracts and things like that. So that's illegal. So how do you get the same result, which is influence in a legal way? The answer is that you um, you run ads and deliver messages that are consistent with the messages of a particular candidate without actually placing that bag of cash on the desk of the particular congressperson. So that's why super PACs are technically independent, right? So uh, Stephen Colbert and Jon Stewart did great riffs on this, I think, in the 2012 election cycle, where they were each they, they, Colbert had a super PAC and he couldn't coordinate with, or Colbert was running for president and Stewart had a super PAC and they couldn't coordinate, but they could talk to each other on TV and things like that. Um, often the super PAC will reverse the name of the official campaign, right? So if, if it's, you know, Kyle, uh, Kyle for California, there will be a super PAC called Californians for Kyle. And you won't know which is which, but they're technically not coordinating. And the super PAC, the reason for being is to accept money that is quote unquote independent. So it doesn't have to play by any of the rules. It doesn't have to, uh, you know, be limited in any way. And it could just dump ad after ad after ad in any medium, I should add, right? Not only television, Facebook, um, electronic media, radio, etc. Super PACs have essentially free reign to say anything they want about anyone they want at any time they want, as long as they're not 
technically coordinating, dropping that briefcase of cash on the congressperson's uh, desk. But, you know, if I started Californians for uh, for Kyle and I started, you know, ad, you know, running all kinds of negative ads against your opponent and you won the race, Kyle, I bet you'd probably feel pretty grateful for, for that super PAC. And you'd probably say, hey, I wonder what they want, right? I wonder if they would like a bill that, I don't know, provides a trillion dollar tax credit, let's just say. And that that's kind of how the cycle of influence works. Hmm. So you could take a, and, and there are very super PACs that, um, you know, for example, there's uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Executive Council, that is largely financed by the oil and gas industry. So um, they might run negative ads. And then when you get into Congress or, or you, know, you get into uh, some kind of office, you will then create laws that benefit the interests behind Alex. Is that correct to say? For sure. And Alec does an, a particularly good job of it because they don't only think about where to funnel the money, but they also basically do the job of Congress, right? So one, the the uh, the two middle letters in Alec are legislative exchange. And they, sorry, yeah, exchange uh, council. Sorry. Yeah, and and uh, or exchange. No, I think you said that, but but I was just emphasizing them because they really do perform that function, which is to say they really write bills and then hand them off to busy legislators and say, hey, you should pass this, right? And and so that's an in some ways an even more efficient way that, of getting what you want than writing these super PACs, which is you know. Congress people look around and right, they, they've got all these things to do. As we just talked about, they're spending half their money fundraising, right? And then they're going on media appearances because they like to hear themselves talk. And then they're dealing with constituent requests. So where's the time to figure out how to write bills that get my name on it, that get passed, that actually do something? And here's Alec, which is this, like you said, oil and gas funded organization that says, hey, here's a bill. You don't even have to write it. Put your name on it, get all the credit, get more money for your reelection, and just help us pass this. And it's just a little teeny thing that will, I don't know, open up this area for drilling to give us billions of dollars. And 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 it's really a very smart solution. It's something that it, like you said, is is geared toward Republicans. Um, and uh, Democrats for a very long time didn't really have an analog. I think there now is a, a left-leaning group that is providing some of these uh, this legislative assistance. I candidly don't know as much about it. It's not as famous or as influential as Alec. Um, but there you have it, right? There's this shadow group that is literally writing the laws they want politicians to pass. Whew. Um, do you... Uh, I, I want to go through a few of these um, topics that we've kind of skipped over. Um, we've talked about... Um, these corporations getting very big. And one thing that I've heard Lawrence Lessig talk about quite a bit are antitrust laws. Um, how have antitrust laws been implemented in the past? And do you see a place for them moving into the future? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. And um, Larry has talked about this. Elizabeth Warren's been really good on the campaign trail uh, in terms of understanding this. And as a former law professor, she's really good at articulating some of these things. Um, you know, the the... The, there was this really in, two, two really important eras in, in antitrust law. And I'm not an antitrust lawyer, but I'll try and, and describe them, right? The, the, the first era was the kind of Teddy Roosevelt, Sherman Act, trust-busting era, where these companies got so huge, right? Standard Oil um, being the most prominent 
uh, the, the, the oil, Rockefeller's oil conglomerate, right, and, and many others, Vanderbilt's running the railroads, that they just overwhelmed American life, and Teddy Roosevelt kind of ran against them, and they were, we, we were able to pass laws, and courts were able to break them up or uh, require certain business changes so that they couldn't act as monopolies anymore. Right. So is the point of an antitrust law um, to break up a corporation if it becomes a monopoly? Yeah, yeah. So monopolization is illegal in right. the United States. And, and, and there was, you know, the rationale for that is, is what's changed and, and what's been malleable. So we could think, and, and in fact, my understanding in the Teddy Roosevelt sort of trust-busting era, that the rhetoric was about that they were just becoming too powerful in all aspects of American life. A monopoly just it, it means that you don't have a choice about where to work, right? They dictate the labor conditions. You don't. You don't have a choice about what products to buy. You don't have, the, you know, they buy off politicians. They keep their power. They get all the good contracts, et cetera. That was a lot of the rhetoric in the 20s, 30s, 40s, et cetera. That kind of be, started to get reframed starting uh, in the 70s and 80s, especially, especially under the, the Reagan Department of Justice and, and even a little bit earlier, um, where economists said, no, that's not really what we're concerned about when it comes to monopolies. What we're concerned about is just prices that are too high. So it's really about consumers. And so they said the, uh, the idea of a monopoly is a company where there's not enough competition so that they can raise prices without consequence without consequence. And as if we're protecting against that, then we're good. We don't really have to worry too much about these other like societal problems. We can pass other laws or they'll work themselves out. Or they might say, and a lot of people make this argument today, which is how can Google or Amazon or anything be a bad monopoly if they're Google's free? Right? What could be better for consumers? Amazon gives you the cheapest prices and the most convenience. Consumers love it. So how can that be bad? As opposed to, say, AT&T, where, like, phone rates were too high because there was only one choice. Um, and so I, I think many people are starting to push back on that movement finally. That, that's really been the wave of where antitrust law has gone over the last several decades. And people like Larry, people like Elizabeth Warren are saying, no, let's bring back this idea that it's not only about prices. It's also about power. It's also about workers' rights. It's also about political influence. And monopolies have really bad effects there, too. Um, and, you know, the same thing with Facebook. People are talking about that as a monopoly. But again, it's free. So the current law, it's kind of hard to, to, to say we should break it up because it's already the lowest cost that it can be for consumers. So um, th I, I do think that it's important to recognize these other effects of monopoly, right? That, that with this huge agglomeration of power comes more than just high prices for consumers. And once you start thinking of it that way, I do think there's, there's, there's solutions there. I think it'll be tough to get the courts and, and, and the Congress to start thinking about things in that way, but the movement is afoot. Great. Um, going back into the solution realm of things, why is Alaska important right now? So Alaska is the place where we've, we've got a case. I assume that's what you're asking. It's yes. important for many yeah. reasons. It's, like, well, the it's, bald eagle, yeah, clearly. The, the bald <laughs> eagle. The bears. There's it, great salmon fishing up there. The fantastic salmon fishing. <laughs> yeah. It's a great place to visit in the have summer. Have you seen Grizzly Man? Yeah. I, mean, I have. So it's yeah. Grizzly. Yeah. So Alaska is super important for lots of reasons. <laughs> um, 
But it's important for our case because we've got uh, a, a legal case there that is still pending where we're trying to get the courts to revisit some of the laws around money and politics. Um, so the way to understand the importance of super PACs begins with Citizens United, but it doesn't end there. Because Citizens United didn't actually, which was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010, I should say, 5-4, that case didn't say open the floodgates to all money. What it did was it started to really carve this distinction between independent groups and the campaigns themselves and political parties. And, and it just sort of pronounced that whatever idea of corruption you've got, giving any amount of money or spending any amount of money by an independent group does not lead to any corruption because, hey, they're independent, right? So again, going back to the Californians for Kyle and Kyle for California example, if those two are independent groups, how, how, can there, how can Californians for Kyle possibly be corrupting Kyle for California? It's technically independent. So that's with Citizens United. The courts then very quickly, though, said, well, if that's the reasoning, we've got to strike down all of these laws related to um, any limits in, for all of money and politics, for all of independent groups, for all of, of super PACs. And so that's what unleashed the gates to super PACs. Because today, Kyle, there are still limits on the amount of money that people can give to political campaigns. Um, it's, I think, just over $5,000 for many federal offices per cycle, um, about 2700 for the primary and then, and then the same amount for the general. Um, th those are enforced, believe it or not. People don't pay that much attention because you could write a check for 10 times that amount to the related super PAC that supposedly is independent, but everyone knows it's for the exact same candidate and doing the exact same thing. But nonetheless, that's the silly distinction the courts have drawn. We want courts to revisit that distinction and say that actually giving, being able to accept donations in unlimited amounts by super PACs can lead to a kind of corruption. And that kind of corruption is not one we're making up. It was made up by the framers. It was made up by, I don't know, James Madison and John Adams and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson because they were really concerned with a deeper kind of corruption than just bribery. Deeper, a deeper kind of corruption than just dumping bags of cash on uh, the desk of a politician. They were concerned with a Congress that was not dependent on the people alone. That's what they wrote in the Federalist Papers. And so when you look at that corruption, we're telling the courts, why, you, you will see that we should reimpose certain of these limits on, um, on super PACs. And that's the argument we're making in Alaska. It's in Alaska because Alaska has this really cool provision that is unusual, which basically lets any citizen sue for any kind of violation of campaign finance law. So Alaska has really great campaign finance restrictions, $500 limits for state offices, believe it or not, in part because um, the, the folks up there are really independent and they also don't want outsiders influencing their elections, right? They don't want outside companies from outside Alaska coming and dumping millions of dollars into their elections because there's so much beautiful and valuable natural resources there and so few people. And so um, a few million bucks can make all the difference. So by 70 plus percent margins in the 2000s, they voted to really tighten these restrictions, but they're not being enforced. The state just decided, eh, you know, we're going to look at these lower court decisions and we we're out of the business of enforcing limits on super PACs. So we sued and we said, why aren't you enforcing these limits again, right? There's no court decision and these laws are technically still on the books. So tell us why you're not. 
And here's our version of corruption, which is actually the version of corruption that James Madison liked and the version of corruption that John Adams liked. And we actually had expert testimony on that issue. And, and, and maybe you should actually get back in the business of enforcing these. So we're waiting for a decision there in Alaska. The goal is, is to uh, have Alaska get back in the business of, of uh, enforcing campaign finance laws and then perhaps, hopefully, get the U.S. Supreme Court, including the originalists there, who are maybe not inclined to support campaign finance restriction, but certainly inclined to care deeply about what James Madison said, maybe get them to revisit this issue. Well put. On a day-to-day basis, you are working on Equal Citizens, you have your own podcast, and you're also an active attorney. What does a day look like for you? I mean, you're, you're covering a lot, man. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I mean, when, 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 I, uh, when I quit the job at a big law firm, I guess I didn't realize uh, how much fun but how challenging it would be to kind of cobble your own day together. And I know you do, and a lot of people have started to do that. And so, uh, but yes, we, we've got, so my day can be everything from organizing events for, for equal citizens. We, we've done some town halls with presidential candidates like Kirsten Gillibrand and Andrew Yang. We're putting together some more to, to try and um, talk deeply about these issues, not just in sound bites, but like we're doing here, have a really deep, meaningful discussion about what people think about these issues. Um, so that's one thing I spend a lot of my time on writing op-eds and, and, and doing other um, uh, advocacy work for equal citizens. You mentioned I'm a lawyer. Most legal work I do is, is also for our equal citizens cases. So thinking about that case in Alaska, we've got other cases related to what I talked about in the very beginning about how we elect the president. So thinking about those issues. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, when I get some free time, I, I do some podcast podcasting on the side just because it's really fun and I, I, uh, I've got a, a show called Versus Trump that I do with a couple of my friends who are also lawyers and we get into real serious lawyer geek stuff about all of the administration uh, litigation against the Trump administration which is like this cottage industry now right just suing the Trump administration over so many things and I think a lot of lawyers want to follow it and say, hey, what are the real nitty gritty of why are courts doing this? Why are they stopping this? Why are they putting this on hold? Why are they disagreeing? So each week we kind of get into that. Um, And so it's fun to have that role and think about it. I'm actually going to be teaching a course on it as well. Um, So because it is an industry now, right? And and so I don't know. It's just it's fun to do on the side. Yeah. Um, And uh, man, you're nailing this, man. This is so fun. or was I just going to go with that? Um, how can people get involved in your work? Equalcitizens.us is our uh, website. You can yeah. get, you know, follow our newsletter there. Um, Facebook, we have a Facebook page, Equal Citizens, where we'll stream those town halls that I was talking about. And then in the Department of Podcasts, we've got your podcast. We've got my side podcast versus Trump. The other podcast I'll direct people to is called Another Way, which we uh, just rebooted as a third season a couple of weeks ago. And in that one, Larry Lessig, who we've talked a lot about um, on this uh, show, who's sort of the intellectual godfather of of a lot of this. Larry sits down and talks with both experts and uh, presidential candidates about all these democracy reform issues, right? Not only the money and politics stuff we've been really focused on, but also gerrymandering and ranked choice voting and voter registration and the history of the Electoral College. So there's a couple good episodes up there already for, for folks. We, we started, I think, about six weeks ago. So we've spoken to Beto O'Rourke about his plans and Kirsten Gillibrand about her plans. Uh, Marianne Williamson, another presidential candidate who cares a lot about these issues. And then we've got some really cool interviews with... Um, 
experts, law professors and historians and advocates ab about what people are doing about these things. So um, I think that's a really good way to educate Get, get educated on these topics if people are interested. Is It's called Another Way, equalcitizens.us slash another way, or just search another way in any podcast right. player. And you uh, mentioned a few of these politicians. Are there any others that you're especially excited about or that people should be looking out for in the coming months and years? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I, I do think more and more Democratic politicians are... Uh, obviously, this is, the question is through the lens of uh, politicians that are tackling the issues that we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah. So um, the okay. So Congressman Sarbanes, Congressperson Sarbanes from from Maryland, is really the per, the main author of HR one. So he's someone to really pay attention to, and he's been phenomenal on these issues. Um, there are several other Congress people who really care deeply about these issues and talk about democracy as as being a first priority. We have been cataloging something we're calling POTUS one for this political season for the presidential race. So I think people should be paying attention to politicians who we call POTUS one because if they want to just like HR one, make these issues the first priority, that would be really important. Um, Pete Buttigieg talks a lot about these issues and he's kind of come close to saying it's his first priority. Kirsten Gillibrand also, as we mentioned, puts this at the top of her list of things she wants to tackle. Andrew Yang has, Beto O'Rourke has a really comprehensive plan. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, talks a lot about these issues. She has other priorities as well. So in terms of her prioritization, you know, we'll see what happens over the campaign trail. But I think um, that's one real good way to follow it. And we've got a, a page on our site where you can follow the developments as people make statements about these issues. Um, and then just pushing them, right? Candidates are everywhere. There's a really diverse primary calendar this year, including an early primary here in California, for the first time in a long time, which I'm excited about, and we're starting to get camp, you know visits and and the like from candidates. So, um, in addition to us, and I don't want to say we're the only ones working on this. Far from it. We, you know, Larry has been writing about these issues for a long time. It has some great books and uh, a new one coming out in the fall. But all kinds of other great organizations that that people can can look for. Um, I personally, we've we've done some work with like. Fair Vote, which is an organization that pushes ranked choice voting, which I think is a really great solution to also some of these money in politics and 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 other democracy reform things. Um, another organization called Represent Us. So those are good organizations to go to that will also help you find the politicians you know in your area and the political causes that that really advance the ball here. Amazing. Uh, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you? Um, E equalcitizens.us, Jason at equalcitizens.us. We've got a small group, so I, I I get the email address of just my first name at equalcitizens.us. Um, people can certainly email me or uh, versus Trump. Search versus Trump on, yeah. on a podcast player. Man, well, I really appreciate the work that you're doing uh, and as well as the clarity of thought that you bring to these issues and the work that you do to bring good examples and... Um, make it understandable understandable and i think that you're a great translator so thank you so much for taking the time um i learned a lot this was great really appreciate it Kyle. yeah that's our show i'm gonna play out a song called flashing lights by sourgrass sourgrass is a santa cruz band and i used to live with their lead singer when i was 18 years old i will link to their band page in the show notes below and if you're a musician and you want your music played at the end of this podcast you can email it to info at kyle.surf and if you want to sign up for my newsletter you can head over to my website kyle.surf once a week i send out the best podcasts i've been listening to books i've been reading um 
music I've been listening to, documentaries I've been watching, and sometimes it even includes a little short story from yours truly. So if you want that in your life, head over to my website, kyle.surf. And with that, I bring you Flashing Lights by Sourgrass. Oh, and also, don't forget to go to scmedicinals.com and get some CBD in your life. Type in the code name KYLE10, all caps, and get 10% off all CBD. Now for real. Flashing Lights by Sourgrass. So